Hi, I'm Ann Doherty, co-founder of Alum. And I'm Sarah Kinzemius, co-founder of Alum. And you're listening to Current. We created this podcast as a way not only to bring you our take on the most important stories happening in the energy industry this month, but as a way to better tell the human side of those stories. Alum social scientists and researchers work with some of the largest utilities in the country to help them think through the opportunities and challenges of transforming our industry. Climate change, energy storage, electric vehicles, resiliency. Behind each and every one of those is not just a grid or a complex set of networks, but people. And that's what this podcast is all about understanding the relationships between those who create energy, those who consume it, and the natural resources that make that possible. So whether you're listening to us on your commute or while going out for a walk or a run, we're grateful you chose us to be part of your day. So what do you say, Anne? Let's get to it. Hi, everyone. This is Anne Doherty. And this is Sarah Kanzemius, and we are delighted to bring you our first episode of this podcast series, where we get to share some of our take on the most important and interesting issues in the industry. I'm excited for this podcast. We provide so much commentary on our LinkedIn pages and on other channels online, and we just felt like we needed time to do more of a mini deep dive. And I think this format, the podcast, fits really nicely between our content online our blog, our magazine, where we really get to go into depth. And today we're going to use this episode to introduce the 2020 magazine and some of our content in that magazine. And speaking of that magazine, I am so proud of our team. Putting this publication together is a major effort. And this is our second go round, and it feels like this year's issue is even better than last. I I'm so proud that we could follow our first magazine, Opportunity and Disruption, with this year's issue, Ingenuity and Resilience. It looks amazing, Anne, and what a team effort. And Anne, in so many ways, this magazine is really your brainchild. So tell us about the themes this year's issue explores and how they emerged. Yeah, thanks, Sarah. We are really excited about this year's magazine. I think it really shows the strength of our team and a lot of our thinking that we've gone through in the past year and our design strength, really, which you see come forward differently in this magazine than it had before. But on the topics, you know, just as our magazine dropped last year, Opportunity and Disruption, a number of different studies were emerging that were taking on the urgency around climate change and our need to move down a critical path as quickly as possible to mitigate the impacts of climate change, but also to ready ourselves and ready our communities. And at the same time, Alum has always been thinking about and in discussion around questions of equity and um, who benefits from our transformation towards clean energy. And this magazine essentially takes on all the topics we wish we could have taken on last year. And we held them this year and started to work through our thinking over the course of 2019 so that we could deliver something that really challenges how we think about our future. And so as you go through this magazine, you'll see that we tackle the technical aspects of moving towards a clean energy infrastructure like beneficial electrification and piloting and developing new programs and services, as well as, and I think more importantly, some of the social challenges that we're faced with as policymakers, as program implementers and designers. 
Yeah, you're right. When you mentioned that it was timely, last year's magazine was being uh, wrapped up. And here in Madison, Wisconsin, we experienced massive flooding for the first time in my lifetime, at least. And the human side, the human impacts of that flooding was pretty significant. And so to me, as you said, it feels like such a such the right time to be having this conversation. And there is such good content in this issue. I know which stories jumped out for me, but Anne, was there a piece for you that as you were doing the research or in the process of interviewing that confirmed we were definitely hitting on the right issues? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I have to say, it's very easy when we start tackling these really tough issues to start to feel demoralized and have a hard time seeing your way out of them. You know, thinking through what is the path forward, how might we move forward? And I found um, when I was interviewing Val Jensen for his piece on Val Jensen's Use the Future, It's Connected Communities, I found myself really inspired because we have a, a utility holding company that is, in effect, putting together very forward-thinking strategies around how you rebuild communities and thinking through the ways in which rebuilding a community, for example, and enabling a community to live a better life is actually good business. And it's that you know, double bottom line or triple bottom line thinking that we are really striving for in this industry. And it's wonderful to have that sort of beacon of light or that inspiration as we think through how might we both advise our clients to move forward, but think about our research differently so that we are an enabling um, factor in, in people's thinking about the utility of the future. Um, if I were to name another piece, I really found um, the piece where we're looking at um, the impacts of uh, power generation and energy historically on disadvantaged communities, which I think really brings into sharp relief the reason why we need to clean our electric grid. And so we explore in um, from grid to human resilience, lessons from public health, ways to re-envision how we think about our metrics and how we think about the way we measure things, to think from the perspective of community and from the perspective of community benefits so that we're not just talking in terms of kilowatt hours or greenhouse gas emissions mitigated, but from the perspective of bettering lives and making communities more resilient. Yeah, I, I think I read the interview with Val about six times and found something to take away every time I read it. And as I think about the whole magazine, you know, asking, asking myself, what's your favorite article or what spoke to me most? It's almost like saying, pick your favorite child. I can't do it. But, um, you know, a couple of the articles that I thought had really interesting things to say about the state of the industry today were the electric vehicle article, reach anxiety, and the battery storage piece. You know, they both deal with innovation and enablement, yet are really frank about the gaps that we still need to solve through. And, you know, one thing that struck me is the fact that everyone is talking about EVs and enabling the electrification of transportation, yet there are a lot of conversations not happening around how to get us there and how to do it equitably. You know, digging into this, we know that nearly 80% of EV credits were claimed by households with pretty high adjusted gross incomes, you know, more than 100000 And that's, of course, well above the U.S. 
average household income, which I think was just over 61,000 in 2018. You know, we see these states like California with extremely aggressive electric vehicle targets, um, but affordability is getting in the way of that. And, you know, we see new vehicle models coming online, but they're either still out of reach for most people or people believe they are out of reach. And, you know, that message was confirmed for us at Alum with some work we did with Georgia Power, where we spent some time talking to Georgia Power's African-American customers. And one of the things we explored was electric vehicles. And while a lot of the customers, I think close to 70%, felt neutral or positive on the ability of EVs to meet their needs, so they, they looked at them and said, yeah, I think they can meet my needs, almost 80% indicated that price was a barrier when thinking about EVs. And this 80% was across, you know, sort of all income demographics of the customers we spoke to. So it's, it's not just uh, a concern for customers who might have limited income, but even folk in higher income brackets still thought of EVs as being something that's financially out of reach. So I, you know, I think about that a lot as we look at these big goals. We have really big goals in our own county here in, in Dane County, and it's a big, it's a big barrier to overcome. Yeah, absolutely. And I think your point around affordability is really important to spend some time with because if you think about those of us who have the benefit of working in this industry, we're all doing quite well for ourselves for the most part. We have the benefit of healthy household incomes and we probably sit well above the average median income, you know, in our own lives. And so I think it's easy to forget what affordability actually means for the average American. So while an EV may seem within reach for us, it's not necessarily within reach for the majority of the U.S. Um, and, you know, that really makes me think a lot about Kathy Kuntz's interview, which was another point of inspiration. So Kathy's been working in the industry forever and was a mentor very much to you, uh, Sarah, early in your career and has certainly been very supportive of Illum. We love, we love Kathy. And um, she said something that I found really powerful and poignant, which was, you know, we've been telling people for the past you know, however many years that they really needed to move towards natural gas. And now we're asking them to electrify. But we're also working in the constraints of three-year program cycles where our regulatory environment is in some ways constraining our ability to move as fast as we need to move in order to meet the climate goals that were set for us. You know, when you have a 10-year runway and three-year program cycles, it means we have to change everything immediately. And I think it's pretty clear we're not doing that. So the question then becomes, how do we move fast enough and in what ways? And how do we get both our regulators and others to uh, make decisions in a more tactical way so that we can actually take on these challenges? And that kind of um, led me to thinking about Another piece that we have, which is about um, climate adaptation. So we have an article in the magazine that takes on the question of how prepared essentially are some of our major cities in facing um, the impacts of climate change that we're going to be seeing or are already seeing, as you've mentioned, Sarah, in terms of the floods in Madison. And um, there are a couple aspects of that that really stood out. One, from a visual side, it was wonderful to see the work of our team kind of come together and create a visual two-page snapshot of what is essentially a really challenging topic. Um, and uh, I think the graphic design team did an excellent job sort of laying out those maps and then building out a way of thinking about these resiliency metrics. 
Um, but I think what is also really compelling about this is that there are multiple aspects to thinking about preparedness and things like heat, drought, flood, sea level rise, and other risks are really different city to city. And the cities we looked at, like Miami, New York, Madison, and Tucson, are really working to prepare for this future ahead of us, but in very different ways. So when we look at preparedness, you see, for example, cities like Madison offer group purchase programs for residential solar panels that is really driving its ability to respond and adapt. Well, in Miami, we know that they're dealing with a host of unique challenges and aren't necessarily poised as a city to take those challenges on, but might be the first impacted. And then, of course, sitting in the desert as a Tucsonan, we think a lot about our access to water and some of the water banking practices that are going on between Tucson and the city of Phoenix and um, the preparedness actions that this you know, greater MSA is taking is really heartening, but there's still a lot of work to be done. So while on the one hand, you know, you can look at this article and say, yeah, we're ready because our readiness scores are characterized as high. If you step back and actually look at the data, you see that, yes, they're high. However, they're high relative to one another, and there's still a lot of room there for improvement. So we have a ways to go, but I think it's important that we start talking about this frankly and and visualizing it in, in a way that's accessible to everyone. Yes, and I, I have to just say that the visualization is so important. And, you know, we're such a visual society these days that being able to paint that picture, both in what may happen, but also what's going on today, who are your customers, where are they, how can you understand who they are based on where they are and other visual inputs. You know, I thought the Centerpoint article did an amazing job at showing how impactful GIS work paired with, with the type of visualization offered by Tableau can be. You know, Centerpoint had this wealth of customer data on energy use and program participation and customer characteristics. And they had us build out this dashboard that now allows them to visually see how to better leverage their data to target customers for their programs. You know, and what I really love about what Centerpoint is doing is how you could take a dashboard like this and layer more and more data into, into it. And there's so many places where access to a similar system and to this sort of visual picture could, you know, help utilities use their rich customer data to better target customers. And, you know, I think, Anne, you would agree, we hear this all the time, you know, this talk of how do we better target, but seeing it, really seeing what's going on with customers in different parts of a service territory and being able to layer the stories that are available about those customers via data is an absolutely amazing way to start to, to better target and better provide services and solutions for customers. I just, I love it. You know, it's an excellent, excellent piece. So what about the production of the magazine, Anne? We're talking a lot about sort of this visual appeal and how visual we are as people now. And we get so many compliments every year on our production and design capabilities. And I think understandably, especially as you look at this magazine, but what stood out from your vantage point? Yeah, um, it's a great question. And you're right. We we receive so many compliments and feedback on the quality of our design. And I think the thing that stands out to me are all the things that you can't see. 
which are the, you know, innumerable iterations and the sort of working and reworking of the magazine and all of its articles that get it to the final place that it's in. So our, our lead graphic designer, Dave, is a wizard when it comes to layout, but it's not without a little pain and heartache in, insofar as, you know, we go back and forth and back and forth and back and forth to try to get the visuals right on every single spread. How do you draw the reader in? How do you reflect the content? How do you elevate the uh, work that our team is doing? Because the design has to match the effort the love, the care that goes into the research, and that needs to be felt by the reader. And the piece that I feel like really does that best in this magazine, in some ways, is the piece that I think is in close also to Dave's heart in a way, which is Val Jensen's piece. Dave, um, for those of you who don't know him, lived in Philly for a long time, and we were going back and forth on the design of this piece for Exelon, and you know, it started out feeling a lot more corporate than we wanted it to feel. And when we really sat back and looked at what Val was saying, we were really talking about the people in the cities like Philly that he serves. And so we started to sort of think through and feel our way through what that visual material might look like. And Dave, you know, stepped back from the work and came back with these images that I think really draw you in to the feeling of these uh, post-industrial industrial cities in the Northeast that, you know, that we, many of us have come from or, or love. And you, I think, get a sense of place immediately, which I think then helps to elevate exactly what Val is talking about and the work that needs to be done in the communities that Exelon is serving. So to me, that jumped out as the most humanizing piece. And then, of course, is another shout out to Dave, his EV piece of archiving um, or grabbing from the archives of the Library of Congress was just so much fun to see the sort of history of electric vehicles and um, the visual history of that just is just a kind of a delight at the end of this magazine. Yeah, I think we could go through each article and talk about how how the design is such an integral part of the story. And you're right. I think Dave as a wizard is maybe an understatement. Um, the, the the level at which he can turn the visuals into um, an equal part of the story and presentation of our results or our our topics is is pretty amazing. So we have you know probably um, piqued people's interest on this magazine if they haven't seen it yet, and maybe the next question on folks' mind is, how do I get a copy of the magazine? I didn't get one. Of course. I would direct them to our website, illumadvising.com forward slash library, where they can download a copy of the 2020 issue and peruse our library of resources, findings, and conference presentations. Along those lines, we look forward to feedback that folks want to share, not only on the magazine, but on topics you would like us to discuss as part of our podcast series. I agree with that wholeheartedly. So I, I think... You know, as we're wrapping up here, I want to make sure we thank our whole team for all their work. And it's also important that we thank our clients for giving us the opportunity year after year to partner with them, conduct such interesting research, uncover these findings and opportunities, and allow us to share it via our magazine. It's such a gift to the industry that the utilities and, and people we work with at those utilities are so willing to share what they've learned so broadly. 
And we really want to thank some of the individuals who took the time to be interviewed and contribute to the magazine. We mentioned Val Jensen, Carter Dedal from Centerpoint, Kathy Kuntz, Charlie Travis, Bruce Silk, and Ron Jagger. You know, they, they really helped make this magazine special and we appreciate their time in allowing us to interview them for this magazine. This podcast was created by Loom's production team and our theme music by Blue Dot Session. Thank you and see you next time.